0: Welcome to Sunday School. We are continuing to look at God's great purposes as they unfold through the history of the world as recorded in the Bible. We've been moving through the book of Numbers, and by this point, you might be despairing of Israel ever inheriting the promised land. This is understandable. I mean, consider what we've seen lately. The first generation of Israel rebelled against God, refused to go into the land, and all of them were laid low in the wilderness. They died. And then we saw last time the second generation of Israel they also complained against God like the first generation when they didn't find any water. And at Meribah they even provoked Moses into momentary prideful exaltation and rebellion against Yahweh. So will such a stubborn people ever actually receive the promised land that God that God promised to Abraham and to Abraham's seed? Well, it will turn out that the second generation is not as unbelieving as the first. This second generation group, it will stumble too, and it will suffer God's severe chastening, but these Israelites will indeed inherit the land. In fact, we're going to see today God prepare the way for their inheritance in a powerful fashion. Actually, reading and preparing the teaching for this accounts of scripture that one word just kept coming back to my mind and that word is unstoppable like a great machine that just blasts through every obstacle in front of it or some mighty warrior that cuts through every opponent israel is about to proceed forward irresistibly into and through the land of canaan but this invincibility it will not be due to israel's power or craftiness or greatness It will be due to the power and greatness of their God, Yahweh. He promised to fight for them. He said he would grant them victory. In a sense, he makes Israel unstoppable. Israel is unstoppable because Israel's God is unstoppable. Now, for us today, we do not face physical battles on the Lord's behalf or at the Lord's command. But I trust that as we look at this account, we will find encouragement for ourselves. We do have spiritual battles and spiritual labors set before us by the Lord, and we can become intimidated or afraid over those things. But as we consider the power and faithfulness of God to Israel to bring to pass what he promised to them, we shouldn't find encouragement that God will also bring to pass what he's promised to us. Now, how did God prepare the way for Israel? We'll find out in just a moment. First, let's pray. Our great God, you are the unstoppable God. No plan of yours, no determination of yours can be thwarted. And we are so thrilled, Lord, that you are our God. All your ways are good. And you've you've chosen to show special mercy to us. And Lord, as we see your mercy on display to Israel, I pray that the hearts of the people would indeed be encouraged and emboldened to courageous obedience of you. Pray that you'd help me to speak and explain this well now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and open to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and verse 21. Numbers 21, 21. Let me give you some context before we get to our main passage. We're left off in the book of Numbers with Israel contending against God at Meribah in the wilderness south of Canaan. So let me get my little pointer out here. So Israel has been around here for some time. Uh, This is where they, this is where we saw them in the last chapter, kind of this area. Now God is now going to bring the people into the land of Canaan, but not in the most logical direction, at least not what we would think of as the most logical direction. God is not going to bring Israel straight up north into Canaan. This is actually how they would have tried to enter Canaan the first time. He's not going to do that. He's going to take them around the east side of Canaan on the other side of the Jordan, and that's going to be how they enter Canaan. Now, before they can go to the east and enter from that direction, Israel encounters some trouble along the way. At the end of Numbers 20, Israel sends messengers to Edom, so Edom's down over here, kingdom southeast of Canaan. They send messengers to Edom asking if they can pass through. And remember Edom, that's another name for the descendants of Esau, and God had actually divinely apportioned the land that Edom lives in to Edom. It was was their gift. Israel was forbidden from dispossessing Edom from that land. So they say, all right, Edom, we don't want to fight you. We just want to pass through. We want to use the king's highway. And what's Edom's reply to this request? Big fat no. They say, there's no way you're coming in through here. If you try, we're going to fight you. And this is a setback for Israel because not traveling through the land of Edom directly, they would have just come right through here, this nice little pass right here. It means that they were going to have to take the long way. They were going to have to turn south and go all the way around the mountain range that defines Edom's territory. It was going to be a lengthy detour. To make matters worse, at the beginning of Numbers 21, we hear that some inhabitants in the south, southern part of Canaan, in the Negev, they decide to attack Israel. They raid Israel and they take some of the Israelites captive. Israel sought vengeance against these people and rescue of the captives. They vowed to Yahweh that if he allowed them to destroy the raiders or to overcome the raiders, they would destroy them all and destroy all their cities. They say, God, if you'll grant us victory, we will do that. God did grant them the victory. And Israel did as they vowed. They destroyed the Canaanite raiders and destroyed their cities. Now, despite this encouraging victory, Israel still had to take the long detour around the territory of Edom, and it became an opportunity for complaint. They complained again. This time they complained against Moses specifically and all their hardships, about all their hardships they were experiencing. And as a result, in God's keeping covenant with the people, but even to judge and chasten them, he sends fiery serpents among them. The term fiery probably means venomous, kind of feels like fire, what it does to your body. It sends venomous serpents among the people to bite them. And people were dying. Seeing God's chastening, the people repented. They uh, they repented before God and before Moses, and God commanded Moses to create a bronze serpent. He up a bronze serpent, and he instructed the people, God instructed the people through Moses, have the people merely look to this bronze serpent. And when they do, if they've been bitten, they will live. Of course, Jesus is going to make an analogy with that in the New Testament about his own being lifted up on the cross. But anyways, there's definitely been some trouble on the way on the way to Canaan. Not the best start for the second generation in terms of faith and believing in Yahweh, but there are some signs of spiritual life. By the time we reach Numbers 21-21, Israel under Moses, they're still under Moses at this time. Aaron has died on Mount Hor. Israel under Moses has successfully gone around Edom and also the territory of Moab and Ammon. Ammon would be right over here, Moab right here. And they're right on the border of the Arnon River and the territory of the Amorites. Now, just a quick reminder, Moab and Ammon, those were descendants of Lot. Their territories were also divinely guaranteed by God. God says I'm giving these to the descendants of lot Israel not to take them but the Amorites God had not given that that same kind of promise their territory was not guaranteed so Israel is not yet next to Canaan getting close on the territory of the Amorites and let's see what happens look at numbers twenty one twenty one well, we're going to read down to verse thirty two. turn off my laser pointer. Okay, there we go. Follow along with me as I read. It says, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We'll go by the king's highway until we pass through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword, and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Javik. As far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, so let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon, it devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh! He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon, but we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Deben. Then we have laid waste even to Nopah, which reaches to Mediba. Thus, Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent a spy out Jazer and captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. All right, we're going to stop here and let's make observations. Of what we did and Notice. Israel's not looking to pick a fight with the Amorites. Verse 22 simply Israel simply asked to pass through the land safely on the king's highway. After all, their promised land was in Canaan on the other side of the Jordan, not on the eastern side in the territory of the Amorites. But notice how Sihon responds in verse 23. He refuses passage and he musters his army to fight the Israelites. The two sides do fight, and what is the result? According to verse 24, Israel prevails actually annihilates the Amorites and takes possession of their territory. And this territory would have included, you can see it on the map there on the left side of the screen, everything between the Arnon and Jabbok rivers on the eastern side of the Jordan. On the eastern side of the Jordan, another name for that is Transjordan. So they take all the territory. They also took Sihon's capital city, Heshbon, along with a number of other cities and villages. These cities they didn't burn, they just took possession of them. Now, notice the poetry in verses 27 to 30, also called a proverb. What does Israel note about Sihon's previous relationship with Ammon and Moab? What was Sihon's previous relationship to these two neighboring kingdoms? Notice, oh, go ahead. They were at war, but who was who was the one on top? Yeah, Heshbon and Sihon. Notice back in verse 29, he says, He has given his sons as fugitives to an Amorite king, or his sons as fugitives and his daughters in captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. He's talking about Moab. He said, you were giving fugitives. You had to give over hostages and prisoners. You were being subdued by Sihon. But what's the contrast in verse 30? But we cast them down. These neighboring kingdoms were under the domination of Sihon, but Israel says, we conquered Sihon. We laid him to waste. But it's not just the Amorites of Sihon that Israel defeats. Let's read on in verses 33 and 35. Look over at those verses. It says, then they turned uh, by the way of Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edrei. But Yahweh, that is the Lord Yahweh, said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people, and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him, and his sons, and all his people, until there was no remnant left in him, and they possessed his land okay, wow, let's make some more observations. Notice in verse 33, Israel heads north toward Bashan. That's kind of the purple area on the map on the screen. This is the region of Transjordan on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This area was under control of another Amorite king, King Og. He gathers his men to do battle with Israel at Edrei. Notice, though, before the battle even begins, God tells Moses in verse 34 that God was going to give the Israelites victory over Og and give them his land. God further commanded the people, though, to do to Og and his people as had been done to Sihon and his people. And what was the result of the battle? Exactly as God had prophesied. It was total victory for Israel. And according to verse 35, Israel obeyed God's command, destroyed Og, all his soldiers, and all of his people. They took possession of the land. Now we get a little bit more information about what happens with Og. And actually, the book of Deuteronomy. So take your Bibles and turn over there. Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy is essentially a, a long exposition of the law, the previous books, and what God had commanded for Israel as the people are about to enter into the promised land. And so Moses in Deuteronomy, he recounts some of the history that they've already experienced. And in chapter 3, he's recounting these battles with Sihon and Og. Notice in verses 4 to 11, though, get some more interesting information that we don't hear in our passage in Numbers 21. Look at verse 4. Moses says to the people, speaking of Og, we captured all his cities at that time. There is not a city, that which, city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argab, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. We utterly destroyed them, as we did the Sihon king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the plateau, and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as the remnant of the Refe- as far as Salika and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, for only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabba of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Now this is interesting. These other details here. Notice in verse four here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3, it says the people took possession of 60 cities from Og. And notice how these cities are described. These aren't just any old cities. They're strongly fortified. High walls, strong gates, bars. Here in verse 6, more explicitly, that all the people, the men, women, and children under Og, were killed while their livestock and treasures were taken by Israel. And then notice what we learn about Og himself in verse 11. It says he was the last of the Rephaim. Appears to be a line of giants, large people, mentioned in Genesis 14 and other descriptions of the inhabitants of Canaan and the surrounding regions. And certainly Og fits that description because he has an iron bed that was nine cubits long. A cubit is generally about 18 inches. You just take nine divided by half and then add that to nine. Nine plus four point five. This is a bed about 13.5 feet. Keep it about 18 inches, so this bed would be about 13.5 feet long. And why would a guy need such a large bed? Because he was a big guy. How tall was Og? If you're back in those days and you're trying to fight against Og, how are you even going to get close to him? His arms and his weapons are going to strike you way before you can strike him. Yet... Here in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, Israel not only killed Og the giant, but all of his soldiers and people, just as God commanded. With these basic observations, let's now ask some questions of interpretation. Why did Sihon and Og attack Israel? What do you think? Yes, Roy. Yeah, that would make sense. That's a good answer, Roy. Likely, there's some fear involved. They've heard perhaps stories of what God has done for Israel and bringing them out of Egypt and in providing for them. Say, oh, man, we gotta, we got to oppose these people. And remember, Israel is not like some small band of travelers. This is a horde of people that's about to travel through Amorite land. And it makes sense for a king to say, I don't trust them. I don't trust this horde to go through my territory. I mean, that's essentially what Edom said. But the Amorites said, I'm not going to let them, or Sihon said, and, and Og essentially said. Now, there may have been some overestimation of their own ability. Sihon appeared to be a great king. He had subdued Moab and Ammon. So he said, I'm going to take down these upstart Israelites. Maybe I can enslave some of them. Maybe an overinflated view of his own power. But ultimately, whatever reason Sihon had to refuse passage, we know ultimately this was the sovereign hand of God. He had Sihon's heart in his hand. He said, you're going out to battle against Israel because I'm going to cast you down. What is the significance of Israel completely defeating Sihon? As we said, Sihon was a great king. He had subdued his neighbors. He was exalted to a certain extent. But Israel says, look, we took him down. We're able to overcome him. And we can ask a similar question when it comes to Og. What's so significant about defeating Og and taking the territory of Og? Yes, deep. Yeah, you're right, Steve, to mention that later on, there's going to be references throughout the Old Testament to these victories against Sihon and Og. Sihon was a great king. Og, or, yeah, Go ahead, I see uh, Roy, your hand is up again. Yeah, the kings looking to exalt themselves. I think that's consistent with that. Dwayne, I see your hand. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Dwayne. It's not insignificant that they take down these great kings. Kings who, mind you, fit some of the fearful descriptions that the spies had originally brought back about the inhabitants of Canaan itself. Remember, they said the people there are giants. Their cities are well fortified and strong with all these high walls and gates and bars. But look what Israel just did. They took down some people who were great kings, some of them even giants, and they took all their fortified cities. And so it's exactly as Dwayne was saying, this should have been a encouragement to Israel that they can trust their God. God will indeed give them the land of Canaan. He will bring them victory, even over the giants and even over the fortified cities of Canaan. Because look, he's already doing it on the eastern side of the Jordan. Yeah, Caleb. That is interesting, Caleb. I didn't think about that. But yeah, Israel is, in a sense, freeing uh, Moab and Ammon from the oppression of the Amorites. We're going to see in the next chapter that Moab is not exactly grateful. They're actually really scared. Um, But that does make me think, in a a certainly distant way, but an all-encompassing way, what is the promise given to Abraham? And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So when God does great things for Israel, When the other nations get on board with it, they'd be blessed too. And really, there is a form of blessing even coming to Moab and Ammon here. So that was an interesting observation. Let me ask another question. Uh, Oh, I, I see that I had my order a little bit different. But why was Israel so successful in these battles? It should be obvious by now, right? This wasn't due to Israel's cunning, martial skill, expert strategy. Because of their God. God was the one who said, I'm giving you Og into your hand. It was God who was fighting for them and giving them the victory. Maybe one other question we wonder about. Why did God command the annihilation of all the Amorites? I mean men, women, and children. Isn't that genocide? Why did God command this? Right. Okay. So part of the answer is practical, and God will even say this explicitly in another section of the Torah. He says, you must destroy the people of the land or else they will drag you away. They will entice you to go after their gods. They will corrupt you. But that's not the only reason. More fundamentally, this is an act of judgment from God. Remember, even going back to Abraham when he has that covenant ratification ceremony in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham what's going to happen in the future. He says, your people are going to be in bondage for a long time. I'll bring them out with great possessions. But this isn't going to happen yet because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now the Amorites are the people in specific reference here. But Amorites is just another, uh, is one of the terms for the Canaanite people of the land. These were a wicked Uh, An evil and utterly corrupt people living in the land and God says I'm giving them time judgment is being laid up against them and when you come you will be my agents of judgment so remember Israel is not some sort of special people that, that can commit genocide just because they want to no they're just following God's command here as special agents of judgment we don't look at what Israel did and try and mimic that today this was a special case and we'll talk more about this later on when we talk about the actual conquest of Canaan, but we, we see some of the evil practices of the people of the land actually in the Torah, because a lot of times God says, don't do this, don't do that, don't sacrifice your children to Molech. Why? Because this is what the people of the land do, and I'm judging them, and I don't want to judge you too. So this is an act of judgment. Though it is also an act of mercy on on behalf of God to Israel, these two purposes are being fulfilled at the same time. God is bringing judgment on the on on a wicked people, and He's bringing blessing to His holy people. Now I see some hands. Uh, I I do need to move on because I want to make sure we can get through all the different things we have today. But hang on to your questions. Maybe we can come back to them at the end. Now, as I said, if you're a neighboring kingdom like Moab or Ammon, and you're seeing these things happen to the Amorites who were kind of the big dogs on the block, the big kids on the block, or the, the big dogs. What's your reaction to all this? You're probably pretty scared. And this is what we see exactly in Numbers 22. You can head back to the book of Numbers. Numbers 22, if you just glance at the beginning of that chapter, we see the king of Moab, Balak. Balak gets together with his leaders, and the leaders of a neighboring nation, Midian, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham via his second wife, Keturah. This is after after Sarah had died. The leaders of Moab and the leaders of the Midianites, along with Balak, king of Moab, they get together, take some counsel. How are we going to stop the Israelites? They're too strong for us. What they decide is, all right, let's get some prophet, Let's get some powerful soothsayer to curse them so we might be able to withstand them. Can't handle them militarily right now, but maybe if we curse them, then we can take him down. And their top choice for a cursing candidate is Balaam. Balaam, the son of Beor, who seemed to be a great prophet and seemed to have some relationship with Yahweh himself, God of Israel. So King Balak sends a designation delegation to Balaam to come and curse Israel. But after this delegation arrives, Balaam consults with Yahweh. And God tells him not to go. So Balaam refuses Balak's invitation. But King Balak's not ready to give up. He sends a more prestigious group of men to Balaam, and he promises an even greater reward to Balaam, treasure, money, etc if Balaam comes and gives the curse. So Balaam decides he's going to ask God again whether Balaam can go. God says, all right, you can go, but you're only to say what I command you. Will Moab be successful in trying to curse Israel? Let's read what happens with Balaam. In verses 22 to 35, in Numbers 22. Now, some of this story may be familiar, with you, familiar to you, somewhat famous, but let's pay close attention to it. Verse 22. It says, But God was angry, because he, Balaam, was going. And the angel of Yahweh took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now, he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey, Turn her back into the way. And the angel of Yahweh stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of Yahweh went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And Yahweh opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed? to do so to you. And he said, No. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of Yahweh said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me, and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Just such an interesting Interesting account, interesting occurrence here. Let's make some observations. There's in verse 22. We're told that God was angry that Balaam went to meet with Balak. You might be saying to yourself, "Wait a second! Didn't God just tell him to do this?" You just look back two verses. He says just that. So why is God angry? Hmm. There must be some reason for this apparent discrepancy. Notice how Balaam's donkey behaves on on the way, on the journey. Three times she stops or changes her path. We're told why, because the donkey sees the angel of Yahweh holding a sword in the way. How does Balaam respond to his donkey's inexplicable behavior? He in frustration, and he doesn't see the angel, nor does he know why his donkey is turning aside. Notice in verse 28, the donkey actually speaks to Balaam. And notice how, verse 28 says that God specifically opened the donkey's mouth. Gave the ability for the donkey to speak. Now, if your pet suddenly started talking to you, how would you react? Maybe some wonder, some fear, some excitement. Balaam doesn't seem faced. This is interesting. Notice what the donkey says. It doesn't say exactly what you'd expect. The donkey doesn't say, Stop hitting me! There's an angel in the way, don't you know? Donkey doesn't say that. Instead, she says, what have I done to make you strike me? And then, have I ever acted in a strange or rebellious way like this before? I've been your donkey for a long time. Is this normal for me? Notice Balaam's response to his donkey. He says, the reason I'm striking you is because you're making me look foolish. Remember, he's traveling with the great dignitaries of Balak himself. And then he also says that he's so angry with his donkey that he would have killed her if he had a sword. But he also admits, you've never acted like this before. And then Yahweh opens the eyes to Balaam and notice how he reacts to seeing the angel of Yahweh. Balaam bows, falls on his face, and eventually he confesses his sin and offers to turn it back. It was in verse 32, angel of Yahweh, in explaining What the angel is doing, he says he came out against Balaam because your way was contrary to me. verse 35, however, the angel says to Balaam, continue, you shall speak only the word which I tell you. You, I'm still telling you, go with Balaam, but say only the word that I tell you. Now, interesting, the angel says, say the word that I tell you. But in verse 20, who said the same thing? God did. Let's ask a few more questions of interpretation now. Who is the angel of Yahweh? Probably used this question by now. This is God. As we we already see in the passage, the angel is saying the same thing, doing the things that are God's prerogative. Likely this is the son of God before his incarnation. But the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. Here's a question. What's being emphasized here about Balaam? He's this great prophet, even a prophet of Yahweh. But he's not able to see the angel of Yahweh at first, though his donkey can, nor is he able to discern the significance of a sudden change of behavior in his donkey. What is this emphasizing to us about Balaam? seems to be lacking something. What is Balaam lacking? Say that again? Yeah, he's just not very spiritually aware. I mean, you're a prophet of Yahweh and you can't even see his angel? You're some great spiritual man and you can't recognize when your donkey is acting in some way that indicates something spiritually significant is happening? Balaam is shown to be someone who lacks spiritual insight and he's supposed to be this great prophet this goes along with our second or the next question why was god angry enough to kill balaam he says your way was contrary to me so certainly there's something off in balaam and in balaam's heart and we get a little hint of it from the context in the previous in the previous section, there is the mentioning of great gifts to Balaam if he will come to Balak and successfully curse Israel. So when God says your way is not right, this could be pointing to a greedy motive in Balaam. That would be that Balaam is hoping for a material reward. He really does want to curse Israel. He's not super interested in doing God's will, and he'll, he'll not do God's will if he can help it. This, this interpretation would fit well with what we see about Balaam later on, because after Balaam leaves the narrative in Numbers 24, he leaves Balak's presence, he goes home. Right after that, the Moabites and the Midianites, who would just been conspiring against Israel, they ensnare Israel via idolatrous revelry and immorality. This is Numbers 25. Now there, God is angry with Israel. He severely chastens Israel for their covenant treachery, but in Numbers 31, we hear about how God brought vengeance against the people of Midian. And part of the report in Numbers 31 verse 8 is this. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zor and Hor and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor with the sword. Whoa, Israel killed Balaam? This prophet? Even a prophet of Yahweh? as part of divinely ordained vengeance. And then in Numbers 31:16, just a little bit further, Moses rebukes the people for sparing the women of Midian by saying, this is Numbers 31:16. behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. Now that's an interesting statement. Moses says, or rather God says, Moses reports, that Balaam was the one who gave counsel that the Midianites should ensnare Israel via idolatrous immorality. So we can see Balaam is certainly a prophet whose way is not right. In fact, as we go through the rest of the Old Testament and especially the New Testament, Balaam is the poster child of the corrupt man of God, the corrupt false teacher, the false prophet. In fact, just to give you one reference, Peter, in the book of Second Peter, he compares the false teachers of his time to Balaam by saying, 2 Peter 2, 15 to 16, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Jude 1.11 and Revelation 2.14 speak similarly of Balaam and false teachers new testament times so certainly the rest of the scripture is going to make make clear that balaam is he is a man who is corrupt but we're already seeing hints of that in numbers 22 in the passage we just read he was a man who was ultimately greedy not above giving counsel about indulging in idolatry and immorality so that makes us maybe ask this question what does god sparing of balaam's life show us about god This is a man who deserves to be struck down. God doesn't do it. It shows us that God is merciful. God's given opportunity even for Balaam to repent. Also shows us God is in control. Balaam, I could have taken you out. I didn't. But I want to let you know I had the power and I had the willingness to do so. Despite all this, God still chooses to speak through this prophet says, I want you to go with these men and speak only what I tell you. Why? And what will Balaam declare on behalf of God? Let's look a little further. Look at Numbers 22, verse 36. And we'll read to chapter 23, verse 12. Numbers 22, verse 36. Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Hozoth. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent some to Balaam, and the leaders were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal and saw from there a portion of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bowls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered up a bowl and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me. Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now God met Balaam and he said to him, I've set up the seven altars and I've offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Yahweh put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and shall speak thus. So he returned to him. and Behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering. He and all the leaders of Moab took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? took you to curse my enemies but behold you have actually blessed them he replied must i not be careful to speak what yahweh puts in my mouth this is pretty amazing let's make some observations just on this section balak wants balaam to curse israel but notice balaam says multiple times i can only speak what god tells me to speak in verse 5 of chapter 23 God gives the exact word for Balaam to speak, and we hear it in verses 7 to 10. Balaam proclaims, essentially, it is impossible to curse Israel. And he pronounces a blessing on Israel instead. And this, by the way, this issue of blessing and cursing, does it remind you of anything that we've seen before? Certain promise made about cursing and blessing? right back in the abrahamic covenant god says those who curse you i will curse and those who bless you i will bless and appeared not to just speak to abraham but even to abraham's seed we'll see actually we won't see we won't read it together but in balaam's later oracles he actually says the same words about israel those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed so i can't curse this people they've been blessed by god verse 11 balak is not a happy camper at this blessing instead of cursing. Now, we don't have time to read the rest of the account of Balaam, but just to summarize a little bit of what we see in Numbers 23 and 24, Balak tries to get Balaam to curse Israel again. He figures, all right, maybe this location didn't work out for you and Yahweh. Let me try and bring you to another one. Maybe Yahweh will be pleased to curse his people from over there. That's kind of a funny bit of logic, but that's what Balaam tries. Each time, though, they go to a new location, they offer all the animals. Balaam Balaam gives a blessing instead of a curse. Being instructed by the word of Yahweh and even being filled with the spirit of Yahweh. He blesses the people. He does not curse them. And he even gives prophetic oracles from Yahweh. He proclaims that the very power of God supports Israel. Balaam also says God will establish Israel as chief among the nations, even a mighty and exalted king is going to come forth from Israel and subdue Israel's neighbors. And on that subject, I do want you to look at a few of the verses together with me. Look at Numbers 24. Numbers 24, verse 7. One of Balaam's oracles, he says this. number 24, 7. Speaking of Israel. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. I look down at Numbers 24:17, 24, 24:17 17, 24, 17, to 19. You hear more about this king. Caleb says, "I see him, not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession, Zair." Its enemies also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. These prophecies about a king, did they remind you of any other prophecies we've seen recently? Remember in Genesis 49.10, Jacob prophesied about Judah, his son, the seed of Judah, and he said, there will rise a king from Judah, and he will have the dominion of the peoples. A scepter shall rise in Judah. I'm seeing a very similar statement being made here. Of course, does Israel have a king at this time? He doesn't. Moses is their leader, but he's not a king. Yahweh is their king, but they don't have a human king. It's only around 1406 when Balaam utters this prophecy, 1406 BC. Israel will not have its first king for almost another 400 years. And yet these prophecies are being made. And in these words about a king, we see that here in Numbers, Yahweh is not only preparing the the people to inherit the land, but he's preparing something much greater. He's preparing for the coming of an exalted and mighty king. In the end, at the end of Numbers 24, Balak gives up in frustration. The people of God cannot be cursed the blessing of God on Abraham and his chosen descendants will not be contradicted. So with this, let's ask a few more questions of interpretation. Why does God choose to speak blessings and even prophecy through the mouth of a corrupt prophet? Certainly this is not God's typical way. Though he does do this, God does choose to speak divine truth through unholy vessels at times in the scriptures. For example, King Saul, when he's sinfully pursuing David, one of the many times he's pursuing David, Saul is made to prophesy against Saul's will by God. It's like, he loses control and he just has to prophesy. Saul wasn't a righteous king, Yeah, that happened to Saul. Or there was a man of God in Jeroboam the first time. This is in the divided kingdom period. He confronts Jeroboam. He reproves Jeroboam. He gives a prophecy. But then there was this other prophet, a lying prophet, who said something false to this first prophet and made that man of God violate God's command. And then God spoke through that lying prophet to say, hey, man of God, you transgressed God's command, and now God is going to put you to death. So God spoke even through a lying prophet. And then, of course, more famously in the New Testament, Caiaphas, chief priest, he declares... The New Testament says, not on his own initiative, but it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. He didn't realize he was actually speaking for the truth from God. And we could maybe even add the things that the demons testify throughout the New Testament. They say, He's the Christ. This man, this apostle, he's from the Son of God. He represents God. Certainly, God is able throughout the scriptures to cause even unfaithful prophets Enemies of God declare what is true. So what does that show us about God? If God can make even his enemies declare the truth, what does that show us about God? He's totally sovereign. He's totally in control. If he wanted to at any time, he could make even the greatest rebels against God declare what is true. There may have been other soothsayers in ancient times who pronounced curses on Israel or who prophesied what is false against Israel. But here, God wants to make a point with Balaam. According to his own wisdom and according to his own reasons, he decides to highlight this one particularly prominent prophet in Moses' day and show that, look, I am totally in control of what he says. He can't curse unless I let him. And he will bless because I have determined that he do so. And if God can stop stop this one man, this great prophet, from even attempting to curse Israel and force a blessing instead, surely God is in control. Surely God's power cannot be overcome. And that means Israel heads into Canaan. God will. Bring his promises to pass. God will fight for his people, he will protect his people, and he will bless his people according to what he has promised. God makes this point abundantly clear, even by use of Balaam. But who is the promised king of Balaam's prophecies? With that reference to Agag, some may suggest that Balaam speaks of Saul, David because we do read about an Agag in 1 Samuel 15. Saul actually defeats and captures King Agag of the Amalekites. He apparently was a great king in Saul's day. Also, David and Solomon, they did subdue Moab and Edom for a time during their reigns. That corresponds with the other prophecy given by Balaam. But the the dominations of Saul, David, and Solomon were pretty temporary. They were indeed mighty kings, but their might quickly fell away. Edom even rebelled against Solomon during Solomon's kingship. So are these words really about those first few kings of Israel? I'm more inclined to believe that the true fulfillment of the prophecies is of a different king. A greater, stronger, more exalted king, Messiah, who will, who came, but who will come again and establish his exalted kingship. Will reign in israel and he will possess the nations but in a special way not merely as subdued rebels but as amos 9 says as a people called by god's very name edom even and the other traditional enemies visual they will one day be called by god's name when messiah establishes his kingdom but you can see here in numbers 22 and 24 god is certainly preparing the way not just in the short term But in the long term, God's plans, they've been established before the foundation of the earth and they will come to pass because Yahweh is the sovereign. He is the unstoppable God. So how should that affect us? How should we be changed, transformed, affected by the truths we read today? Let me suggest a few avenues of application. And I think you can see these really all relate to each other. Reading this passage, hearing these things about God should cause us to believe the promises of God. Romans 8 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? Is God not for us? God's purposes for Israel could not be stopped. God has purposes for us too. For those of us who are in Jesus Christ, God's purposes for us will not be thwarted. His promises will come to pass. He will provide for our needs in the right way in the right time. It will help us to endure hardship and temptation when we call upon him. He will use us to make disciples and to build up his disciples when we speak of the Lord. And he will ultimately bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom to be with him and to experience his reward. These things will come to pass. So let's believe them. Let's have faith in our God. Along with that, that means we should rest in the sovereignty of God. You don't have to see how something will work out to know that it will, because Yahweh is unstoppable. God's promises cannot be contradicted, but let us stop being anxious or demanding in our hearts that we need to see how God will provide before we will trust him. We can rest in our unstoppable God, but not just rest. We should act boldly in obedience because of our God. Seeing that God is unstoppable In his purposes and in his promises, it surely encouraged Israel that they would be unstoppable in conquering the land as they were obedient to the Lord. We're going to see that come to pass. One of the exhortations that God and even the people of Israel will make to their leader, to Joshua, is be strong and courageous. Why be strong and courageous? Because Yahweh is with you and Yahweh fights for you. We too should be strong and courageous in the Lord. We should boldly minister the gospel for his sake, expectant that God's good purposes will come to pass through us. Let us not embrace that false humility which says, oh, God could never amuse me. I'm so weak. I can never do anything. You are weak, but your God is strong. And he's made certain promises that will come to pass even through you. As the great missionary to India, William Carey, said, and I've shared this with you before, but it's a good word. William Carey said, Expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. You never know what Yahweh might accomplish through your own simple faith and obedience. His promise to use us. Let us be strong and courageous for the Lord's sake, and let the Lord do what seems best to him. Questions or comments from what you've heard today? Yes, Roy. Hmm. yeah that's really useful thank you roy mentioning the words of rahab later on testifying that the people they knew about yahweh and what yahweh had done for israel not only in egypt but also in giving him victory israel victory over sihon and og and that's a good point too that it's not as if none of the people of the land had an opportunity to repent because we see that Yahweh will spare Rahab and her family because they helped Israel. They didn't continue along with the people of the land. And most of the people of the land were not willing to change sides like that. And of course, we'll see, as we talk about even next week, Rahab will be in the line of Messiah. So even even as God brings terrible judgment, just judgment on the wicked people of the land, he was, as you were saying, Roy, testifying about himself to the people of the land even so that they would repent. That's good. If you have other questions or um, ideas that came to your mind based on today's lesson, please feel free to email me, share those with me. I I enjoy those, and I'll try and answer your questions as best I can. But that's it for today. Next week, we see the change in leadership in Israel. Moses, his time is finished, and a new leader will take them into the land, Joshua. Before they do that, they're going to spy out that first obstacle, that first great obstacle to obtaining the land of Canaan, the city of Jericho. i we'll talk about that next time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see what your word declares, and that is you are the strong, powerful, unstoppable God. Your purposes cannot be contradicted. You will bless your people. You will bring your promises to pass for them. And God, we are your people, and you have made promises to us, precious, magnificent promises, God, just as is talked about in 2 Peter chapter 1. And it is by them, God, that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. So, God, help us to be strong and courageous, to fight against sin, to proclaim your liberating gospel, to warn those who continue to rebel against you, Lord. Help us to be strong and courageous, not because we are strong, but because you are strong and you have promised, you have purposed, Lord, that you would use us. So use us indeed. Use us to build up your church. Use us to bring more sheep into your fold.